Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. This week, we've seen horrific bushfires plague New South Wales and Ida Buttrose pulling an episode of Q&A for inciting violence against men. But as always, we're going to give you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. First up, we have Mahmoud Fazal, writer and host on Vice's Violent Times, speaking to us from Melbourne about the intersection between rap music and Sydney's western suburbs. And after that, we have BuzzFeed news reporter Hannah Ryan in the studio with us to discuss her recent coverage of the treatment of refugees in Australia's detention centres, both on and offshore. Stay tuned. Our first interview is right after this. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. So, do you know what grime and drill are? Have you been listening to one for recently? This emerging genre of rap is becoming increasingly popular and many are finding ties to Sydney's western suburbs. We have writer and host of Vice's Violent Times, Mahmood Fazal, speaking to us about the special connection between rap music and Sydney's west. Hey there, Mahmood. Hey, what's up? Hey, so... We're doing great. We're really excited to have you. We feel much cooler just having you on the show today. <laughs> no, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So, for the less cool like myself, what is grime and drill music? Basically, two genres of music that evolved from rap music. Grime's kind of got Caribbean roots in the UK, kind of links. They were rapping over like dance hall beats and stuff like that. Um, but grime is a new variation of that which is kind of grounded in street violence and really visceral descriptions of street violence namely knife stabbings um gang activity and just repping the area that you kind of come from so i mean you've mentioned um you know the kind of themes of violence um prevalent in this music um is there a link between um, the violence and masculinity in the music and the communities where it's played? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say Western Sydney is like Johannesburg or Raqqa, mm. but, you know, like Punchbowl Park by night is a very different place to Surrey Hills. Um, these displaced communities had to struggle to make sense of the cultures that they were kind of born into. And they had to deal with issues of identity in a society that some people didn't feel like they belonged to a lot of the time. So whether it's the way um, New South Wales police chose to police their neighbourhoods, specific neighbourhoods in the western suburbs like Bankstown, Punchbowl in the early 2000s, where they used the zero-tolerance policing strategy, a tactic that was borrowed from the police in New York City who were trying to reclaim like black areas, black streets like Harlem in the early 90s. So so when you're raised in communities where people, you know, your peers are going to jail, selling drugs, robbing each other, not that that's the whole Western Sydney story, but it's it affects those kids that have a hard time dealing with these issues, trying to make sense of the societies that they kind of don't 
don't feel like they belong to. So these right. rappers are making making music for for the outsiders in the western suburbs, not for everyone, and they're not representing everyone in the western suburbs, but they're making music for outsiders, and it's resonating throughout Australia because there's a lot of people that 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 understand what what what, what happens in those communities. So, uh, Mahmood, your work focuses a lot, as you've mentioned, on the intersection between rap music and Sydney's western suburbs. Uh, how would you characterise the scene in the region at the moment? Specifically in the in the western suburbs? If you could, yeah. Yeah, I think, thanks, it's big thanks to One Four that the, the scene is really taking off. Um, people are sending me new music almost every couple of weeks from the western suburbs. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the link to the UK and the way we can, there's like, um, we can relate to those communities as well. Um, yeah, like guys, guys from Bankstown, like Jay Huss, I mean, making music like Jay Huss, like Hooks, for example, um, yeah, sorry, I don't think I'm answering your question very no, well. No, 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 you are, you are. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, yeah carry on. Yeah, um, I, I don't know how to characterize the scene because it's so diverse. You know, mm. there's so many different communities and they're all very different to each other and they all represent a different side to Western Sydney. So they all they all sound different. Um, I don't know how to characterize it in broad strokes because a lot of them, I mean, it's not even really just grime and drill now. You've got Afro Swing, um, you've got more R&B stuff, there's soul, soul acts coming up as well. But they all they all have that, that look. You know, they've yeah. got the Gucci caps, they're rocking. <laughs> For sure. You know, they're at the front of their favourite restaurants and stuff. And it's, it's kind of local and, and we all get it. We all get down with it. So, you know, what is it about these genres that appeals to culturally diverse communities in the West? I think our communities understand each other. We've never really had people from culturally, culturally diverse neighbourhoods make noise in the same way 1-4 have. You know, uh, they they say it themselves, you know, they've got that rude image, they have the energy, and they've done their homework in the scene. Like, the production value is, is of, I mean, it speaks for itself. Yeah. They use the same producers as the big UK drillers use, too. So, you know, there's a reason, there's a number of reasons why you have, you know, Instagram videos of kids in private schools yelling, spot the difference, and talking about urchin, which, you know, these, I, don't, I don't even know if they know what urchin is, but... Um, for us, it was like the first time we saw our people talking about our environment in a language that and lingo that we understood, and it also draws a lot of criticism. Like, like the article I published the other day was was met with a lot of hostility and harsh criticism from you know young white keyboard warriors. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of a lot of young because it was like the first time these young white kids were. were were trying to make sense of something that wasn't for them, you know, and they didn't understand it. And so they just, they just choose to hate on it and throw shots, but they can't stop it because guys like one, four HP boys and hooligan heps, they're going to get millions of views regardless. And it's only going to get bigger and better. I reckon. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking to Mahmood Fazal about the intersection between emerging rap music and Sydney's western suburbs. So you were just speaking about the article you wrote, and in it uh, you say it's easy for some of these groups to fall back into that street violence mentality. So how can we break the cycle and help Aussie artists get back on their feet? And what kind of support do you think they need? 
Well, the people igniting these issues are usually those that have no idea what they're talking about. They jump on YouTube and say, I heard this artist got jumped here, or, or he's taking shots at this bloke with this lyric, or this happened to this guy in jail. We really don't know any, any of the details behind that, or, or they, don't, they don't even really know what they're talking about. They've heard a rumor. They gossip, and of course, these guys that they're gossiping about aren't professional musicians. They've been around for like six months, some of them. Whatever professional musicians mean, I, I don't quite know, but, but they're street guys that are transitioning, and they read all this stuff. And things happen. Like 90% of street violence is the result of rumors and jealousy mm. from people that generally don't know, don't even know what the real story is behind it and how these people know each other. So these boys need to, to really do their best, set their egos aside and focus on the music because their responsibilities aren't to the set anymore. It's not to the area code. It's not to the street or to the train station. It's to the community, the community that they're trying to champion. So... We need to, I, th I think that the best way for anybody that wants to, you know, help this scene mature, we need to jump online and remind them not to get involved in drama or street politics and all this bullshit that people are just yapping about in the comment section and try and bring these massive acts together. So Western Sydney music groups like One Four are getting more of a voice nowadays, but it seems like they're still being locked out of the mainstream music scene. You know, what kind of barriers are these groups facing? I mean, people don't like it because it's... Some people don't like it because it's so successful and it draws attention to the side of the community that, or the side of Australian society that people are uncomfortable with. You know, the reality is that to be authentic in a medium like rap music, you have to have a lived experience. These boys have been on the street and they've served time for it, some of them. Now they want to escape that life and make something of their past. But New South Wales Police announced a strike force in Bala a task force of 20 detectives and who, are, who specifically come out in a press conference and say that they're targeting one fault. And venues, venues are then pressured um, to, to cancel their live shows for security reasons because they have this weird idea that all these gangs are going to show up and there's going to be a big gang war inside a concert. And they've played live multiple times in secret shows and nothing's ever happened. So, uh, but yeah, I, I just hope... Um, I hope they, it seems like they are overcoming that now because Live Nation has just announced a tour. Mm. Um, they're touring 1-4 around Australia and um, Hooligan Hefts is going on tour too. So um, I think they're finding ways to navigate it and largely because they're probably just so popular that, you know, it's bigger than New South Wales Police now. <laughs> Thank God, man. Uh... Uh, so as it stands, it seems like drill and grime music is quite male-dominated, even in Australia. Uh, just how many women are making this genre of music? Yeah, I was, I've been trying to, in research for this article, I was trying to find some, and I, I, I haven't had much luck. I was talking to Harry Beast, like the OG in, in the old hip-hop scene, trying to find find out if there was any, any new artists in the last year. Like, we've traditionally had some R&B singers like Rebecca Hash and Jessica Jade, both from Sydney's West, but and there's been um, female rappers in the past. Actually, the originators of this quote-unquote lad rap scene were a crew from Western Sydney called Sydney Searchers, and that crew was made up of Schemo, Enter, and Sky High, and Sky High was a female. But, uh, but I, I'm still yet to see a new wave of female drillers. But it might just be because of the culture that that, that genre represents. It's, it's quite you know, hyper-masculine, so, and 
you know, quite performative as well. Mm, so do you think we might see a new wave of female artists anytime soon? I think so. I mean, I hope so. I'm definitely eager and keen to see it for sure. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, I, just to end off the show, Mumbud, we're going to play one four, spot the difference. Yeah. But before we do, I want to know what's on your playlist. What do you reckon? What do you reckon we should be listening to? Oh, there's just so much. I love obviously one four, Young yeah. and Lips, really good R&B sort of sound. HP Boys, Hooks, Massey Rook, who just got out of prison. Um, he's he's making waves. Section 60 is fresh from North St. Mary's, Double Six, 30 Kings, Scotty Hines, Shadow, Rob, Stein. There's so many. Like, I could just I could go on forever. We'll definitely add those to our playlist. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, <laughs> Thank Mahmood. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Mahmood Fazal speaking to us about the intersection between emerging rap music and Sydney's western suburbs. Stay tuned because we've got an interview with BuzzFeed reporter Hannah Ryan. She'll be discussing her recent articles on the treatment of refugees, particularly Villawood Detention Centre's alleged disregard for the legal hearings of their detainees. That's right. But as promised, we are going to play you one fours music. Here's Spot the Difference. Stay tuned. You're listening to Back Chat. The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact chat, your alternative to talk back. It was recently reported that Villawood, one of Australia's major immigration detention centres, has been reprimanded by a tribunal for repeatedly bringing detainees to the hearings a little too late. But it's just one of many problems faced by detainees at detention centres, both in the country and offshore. Yes. Um, in another article, BuzzFeed reporter Hannah Ryan explains what the Australian government is doing to keep sick refugees away from its shores. We've got Hannah in the studio with us right now to discuss the situation. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming in. So uh, can you give us an overview of the case and and how, how the issue has come to light? Yeah. So basically, I came across this one earlier in the week. Um, it's a Decision of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which normally, you know, they kind of can be a boring read, but this one started in a really fiery way. Basically, the tribunal member was like, this hearing was meant to start at 10 a.m. on the 23rd of October, but it got to 10 a.m. and the guy whose hearing it was wasn't even here. He bowled up like an hour late and the tribunal member was like, you know, why why is he late? And the guards were, basically gave an excuse that the... Um, the guy who was appealing his visa cancellation had slept in. They'd woken him up at 7am and then he'd gone back to sleep and so that's why he was late. And the tribunal member was basically like, that's unacceptable, you have absolute control over this man's life, like he's in detention, it's your responsibility to bring him here on time and said that their excuses were laughable and impudently offered, uh, which is a word I had to look up in the dictionary, but basically <laughs> means it's like very rude of the um, border force to offer that as an excuse to the tribunal member. And the other thing he said was that, you know, he found out that there were other examples in recent weeks of people being brought late to their hearings from detention. Um, so basically said this is unacceptable and they should tell the minister about it. So do we know of any other cases of detainees being late or missing their hearings while in the detention centre? So, yeah, the the tribunal member did say that it happened. It didn't spell out specific cases, but um, the lawyer who acted for this guy in this case, I spoke to him and he said it was fairly, you know, it, it did happen. So he had another example of, of a client a few weeks before this case where, you know, he was he was at the hearing, he was waiting. He confirmed that he had to be brought to the hearing. He wasn't there. Um, time passed and then 
eventually the the guards were like, he's not coming at all. We're going to put him on through audiovisual link. So he appeared on like a TV screen in the hearing. And he said, like, it was just really confusing for his client because he told him that he would be there. So his client was like just a bit, you know, put off by that. As well, the audiovisual link kept breaking up and so you know it got disconnected a couple of times and so it just raised all these issues of like is that fair for the client um i did ask the tribunal about this but i i don't think it's something they collect data on but it does seem to be something that happens with some regularity so to what extent are the guards in the detention center responsible for shuttling detainees to their hearings like what's their responsibility well according to the tribunal it's an absolute responsibility so basically what this tribunal said was like you know you it's detention you have absolute control over these people's lives, you have an absolute responsibility Mm. to bring them to their hearings on time. And he had very little patience for the excuse that this guy just slept in. You know, basically he was saying, well, if he slept in, like, you go in and you wake him up and you make sure he's in the the car on time. So we know that Villawood has been, as you wrote, scolded. (laughs) Uh, But what can we reasonably expect to change at the detention centre and how? Well, that's an interesting question. The um, tribunal member was obviously pretty keen to get this to change. He said that the minister should be informed. I went to the Department of Home Affairs and I asked them, you know, has the minister been informed of what's what's happening here? And they wrote back with a pretty, you know, bland statement saying, like, we make every effort to bring people to their hearings on time and, like, we always have. So they, they didn't give any indication that anything would change, but who knows what goes on behind closed doors. It's a very secretive space. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Shami Sivasubramanian. We're speaking with BuzzFeed News reporter Hannah Ryan about Villa Wood Detention Centre's alleged disregard for the legal hearings of their detainees. So, Hannah, you wrote another article this week about a refugee being held on Nauru who was flown to Taiwan for medical treatment. So what lengths are Australian is the Australian government going to to keep its sick refugees away from the country's shores? Oh, uh, that's such a big question. I could, <laughs> I could answer that for like Answer it now. Very long, no, I'll answer it quickly. Um, well, in this case, like, they're going to quite extreme lengths. So my reporting has shown that there's a policy the Australian government has, which is you can only bring someone from Nauru or Papua New Guinea to Australia for medical treatment if they've got, like, if there's an imminent risk of death or serious and like permanent disability from their illness, which is an extremely high threshold. And anything short of that, the policy says you're not allowed to bring them to Australia. The problem is that Nauru and Manus and Papua New Guinea, Port Moresby don't have the same um, access to healthcare that we do have in Australia. So Papua New Guinea is slightly better than Nauru. They do have, you know, some of the equipment and specialists, but they don't have the full range of, um, you know, medical equipment to deal with some of the illnesses faced by these people held on Nauru and Manus. So the Australian government, um, then there's a gap between the healthcare that they can get on these islands, but the threshold when they can come to Australia. So as a way to solve that, the Australian government basically fished around for another state, another country that could treat these refugees so that we don't bring them to Australia when they're really sick. And in 2017, they struck a deal with Taiwan. So basically, Taiwan will, because Taiwan has great healthcare, Taiwan will take um, sick people from Nauru and treat them to avoid bringing them to Australia. So it's, you know, quite a big, like, diplomatic Mm. effort to sign a memorandum of understanding. We're covering all the costs of these transfers. So it is pretty extreme 
extreme lengths that they're going to to avoid people coming to Australia. So the Department of Home Affairs repeatedly refused freedom of information requests for the agreement between Australia and Taiwan. So why have they been so secretive about all of this? <laughs> That's something else I asked the Department of Home Affairs and <laughs> yeah. didn't get an answer to. What's all the secrets about, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I know. Just tell me the truth. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, when I got my hands on the um, agreement after like a year of trying, it was actually pretty easy to do because it had been tendered as evidence in a court case where the government was trying to send this woman um, to Taiwan to get an abortion, but she'd undergone um, genital mutilation. And so her lawyers were like, you can't send her to a place where there's no one with the experience to perform a surgical abortion on someone who's undergone genital mutilation. Um, So basically there was a fight in the courts about whether this woman should go to Taiwan or go to Australia. And in the course of that, the government tendered the agreement as evidence. Um, But I had tried to get it under freedom of information and they said no because it would harm our diplomatic relations basically because it was like the agreement itself said it was confidential so I then obviously thought the contents of it are going to be extremely juicy (laughs) (laughs) and when I got it it was like pretty straightforward like you know it just spells out that these are the circumstances in which Taiwan will take sick detainees Um, you know this is who covers the cost and this is how logistics will work and by the way it's like extremely confidential so there's just a confidentiality clause in there that there's no there's no obvious reason why it should be so hush hush Hmm. so is the Taiwan deal still in force and if so what's the intersection with Australia's medivac laws an interesting question that I also put to the Department of Home Affairs. Anyway, I think we can probably assume it's still on foot. It was originally meant to last for two years, so it would have originally expired in um, September, but it's pretty easy to just keep it going. They just need to exchange letters. And I think that it's going to become increasingly relevant with this Medivac debate, because basically what the Medivac law means is that if two doctors recommend that someone comes to Australia, then there's a presumption that that has to happen and, you know, it can be overruled by the minister, but there's a whole process there. So it basically gives more power to doctors and it makes it easier for people to come to Australia despite this hardline policy. Now, if Medivac is repealed, then that means that that avenue to Australia is going to be closed off or harder to access. And that's going to mean a whole lot more people are offered transfer to Taiwan instead of transfer to Australia. So that's going to become increasingly important. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Hannah. This is so interesting. Thanks for having me. That was BuzzFeed news reporter Hannah Ryan discussing the recent developments at Villawood Detention Centre. Well, that's all we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska and Pip Leeson. And a big thank you to our guests, Mahmoud Fazal and Hannah Ryan. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song from from we're, one four again. Yeah, we're going to play we a are. song from one Amazing. four. Um, we've been enjoying them. Um, and you should check them out. They are touring around Australia right now. You can they get are. tickets from Live Nation. Uh, we're going to play The Message. See you all next week. Bye.